For most of its history, the court's just been a disaster for workers. These are rural working women who are facing very significant challenges, many of which are compounded by the choices that our, some of our politicians have made. And so we really have to make sure that we're telling those stories. We don't have free abortion in Australia. We don't have it being um, properly accessible. It's far too few services. So we also have issues that raise ourselves. Um, so that's yeah, another reason for us to see thousands out there today. I worked at uh, McDonald's part-time, literally right on the street, just south of the border, the bad McDonald's. And I kind of liked that job because on Saturday nights, I would do, um, I forget what they call it, but basically I'd be the lobby guy. And I didn't have to change the garbage. I didn't have to pick up a mop. I was basically the McDonald's bouncer. It was great. I mean, 16 years old, I was a big kid, but downtown Toronto? Yeah, okay, let's go. That was really exciting for me. It's this empathy that unions bring and these stories that are shared, which is the same in our queer community, in our black and brown communities, with women, with non-binary folks, with transgender folks, with all of us. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, we're featuring three reports on the effect of the recent Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. On Your Right to Work, Labor historian Joe McCartan reminds us that counting on the Supreme Court to uphold key rights was always a mistake. Then, the Heartland Labor Forum hosts a roundtable of legal experts and academics who discuss how the decision will affect working folks. And for our last report on this issue, we'll go down under for the Solidarity Breakfast podcast coverage of a pro-abortion rally in Australia. Then we completely shift gears with the Alberta Workers podcast interview with Dominic Shaw, who rappelled down the Calgary Tower in a wheelchair. And we wrap up this week's show with two activists from the Byron Rustin Center discussing the life and legacy of this gay labor activist on the Solidarity Works podcast. A quick word before we get to the show, this is your network, and we're building it like a union organizing campaign, one show and one listener at a time. That means you can help out and build this sonic solidarity. Just share this show, click on the share button. Thanks so much. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome, everybody, to Your Rights at Work. Chris Garlock here once again with Ed Smith. See if he can remember how to do this after our week off last week. Hey, if you've got questions, and I know you do, about your workplace rights, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had, now would be the time to give us a call, 202-588-0893. That's 202-588-0893. Ed Smith, you got a little something-something for us. 
Hey, Chris. Good to see you. Good to be back on the air. Um, and yes, I wanted to let you know that uh, Your Rights at Work is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. There's nearly 150 labor radio and podcast shows out there just like ours. And you can check them out at laborradionetwork.org. That's laborradionetwork.org. On June 24th, the Supreme Court overturned the historic Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized abortion in the United States nearly 50 years ago. The decision sent shockwaves across the country and through the American labor movement, which recognizes that reproductive rights are a worker issue, affecting millions of working women and their families. Last week, I asked labor historian Joe McCartan to give us a historical perspective on the Supreme Court's decision. For most of its history, the court's just been a disaster for workers. From a long-term historical point of view and from a labor point of view, what we're seeing in the Supreme Court in recent years is a kind of reversion to form. There was a brief period between the 30s and the 70s where the court was more pro-worker than it had ever been before or since. Um, and there are things that it did in the period since the 60s that helped, you know, the reputation continue to survive, um, that it was somewhat of a guardian of individual rights. I think you see this um, in uh, what it did on some civil rights issues in the 60s, for example, getting rid of the poll tax, um, what it did on um, women's issues when it came to reproductive choice in the Roe v. Wade decision, what it did for, you know, uh, the rights of LGBTQ people in the Obergefell decision even recently, right? Well, as conservative as it's become in recent years, the court still did do Obergefell. Obergefell and um, I would say Roe what they were about, though, was individual rights. And the court is a lot more, um, has been historically able to recognize individual rights. Collective rights is really where the court always had a problem. And that's where labor always came out and still continues to come out on the short end of the stick legally, uh, overwhelmingly uh, in the Supreme Court and its history. Um, worker rights um, ultimately you know, workers don't have much power as individuals. Um, and uh, for workers to exercise power and voice really requires them to be able to develop a collectivity. The shift that happens after 1936, where the court backed away, that, that probably wouldn't have happened without a overwhelming re-election for Roosevelt, the people basically saying, we want more of these programs, and without Roosevelt also kind of taking on the court. Uh, which he threatened to do by expanding its um, its membership. And, and that latter thing might be a thing that we hear more and more about today, given the recent decisions by the court, which increasingly are 6-3 decisions that overturn not only Roe Ro most recently, but, uh, you know, have overturned lots of precedents as well. Just a few years ago, um, this court overthrew a precedent uh, in, the, in the public sector that allowed for the funding of public sector unions by the people they represent um, with the Janus versus AFSCME decision. That was also taking a, a case that seemed to be settled law uh, and basically saying, no, it's not settled anymore. 
uh, and, and overturning the precedent that had dated back to 1977. In the case of Janice versus Asme, they wanted to, to you know, disempower states from having laws like the one in Michigan that originally set the precedent. So, you know, this court has shown hostility to letting the people decide when they don't like what the people might decide. Uh, and in the case of um, overturning Roe, I think, you know, up until that decision, Roe held in every state. And now it only holds in the states where people uh, will uphold it um, or the principles behind Roe, at least. Roe itself is gone. But the idea that abortion should be legal will only be true in some states now and not others. And, you know, there are some I know in the, in the movement against abortion who believe that they just took half a loaf in this decision, that they'll be coming back for more. Uh, and I'd be surprised, given the, the nature of uh, Alito's opinion, if he didn't try to give them more next time. How that will play out is unclear. Um, However, you can see a, a sort of parallel between how this court handles some of these kinds of issues regarding reproductive rights and some of the ways it's handled labor issues. And, you know, to, to return to center on the labor question here at the end, we're not going to see progress uh, on labor law reform. We're not going to see a better Supreme Court when it comes to workers' rights without a movement, without something happening in the streets without a struggle. Now, Joe McCartan, wonderful to have some historical perspective, uh, as always, especially in times like this. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you as always, Chris. You are listening to 90.1 FM KFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. On tonight's show, we'll discuss who is behind the push to outlaw abortion and how the fight in Kansas is shaping up. With us to do that are Ashley All, who for over 20 years has done political communications, most recently as communications director for Governor Laura Kelly. Ashley now has her own consulting firm and works for Kansans for Constitutional Freedom, a group opposing the Constitutional Amendment. Joining us too is Darcy Wood. She's been on the show before talking about her union, the American Postal Workers Union, Local 67. And finally, we have Max Skidmore, who retired in 2018 after 34 years as political science professor at UMKC. Max has written many books, but he's just taken a turn towards the abortion issue and has written a new book called Abortion and Informed Common Sense. Welcome to all of you. Darcy, from your viewpoint, what benefits did the Roe decision bring to women and families? I would say this is a working woman's issue, but I'd like to point out that this is a working man's issue. It's a working family's issue. Working families have the right to make decisions for themselves economically, the decisions to when to plan their families, those will be taken away. Also, I'm concerned about a pro-worker agenda is a pro-life agenda, but we don't have a living wage. We don't have paid maternity leave. And these are some of the reasons why many women seek abortions because of economic reasons. And then you're going to take those decisions away. I've heard that a lot of women joined the workforce and subsequent to Roe versus Wade, not just because of Roe versus mm -hmm. Wade, but Roe versus Wade created 
the opportunities that women had to plan, right? Right. And, and again, you're taking that decision away from working families. And we haven't even addressed the high percentage of black women and babies that are dying in this country. We haven't addressed the problems that we do have for working families in this country. And yet we want to make things harder. And we're now we're looking at criminalizing women. It's not just abortion itself. Now it's what about a woman that's had a miscarriage? Now she's being looked at as maybe she's possibly had an abortion or tried to abort the fetus herself. They're going to, you're going to criminalize women for that. I believe the number is around 40% of women need medical care. Now, are you going to have women that are not going to seek that medical care because of the fear? What about ectopic pregnancies? This is really, it's really fundamentally wrong. We're going to send women to federal crimes and take away their vote. It's just, it's really going to affect this country in ways people, I think people have not thought about. I really do. Max, you want to add something? I'd say absolutely. And there's a basic contradiction in that most of the people, or certainly I would argue a majority of the people who oppose abortion, also portray themselves as opposing big government. Yeah. Now, you cannot have an effective anti-abortion policy unless you have a powerful government, an authoritarian government. Every woman who becomes pregnant immediately becomes subject to government control. Now, if you don't believe in big government and government control, and do believe in restricting abortion, you're not thinking through the issue. You cannot have effective abortion without big government. I just saw an article about how in Poland, which is a pretty authoritarian government yes. these days, yes. they've started a maternity registry registering all pregnant women so that they can keep track of them to make sure that they don't have abortions. That's pretty scary. And that's what will happen. You can have physical examinations of women periodically to assume, uh, to assure that they're not pregnant. So we've just been talking at break about the criminalization that's going to occur of women, of doctors, of somebody who drives you to, to get an abortion, an illegal abortion, if Roe falls and these states pass laws like Oklahoma or Texas have. Ashley, talk about this. What what would be permitted and what wouldn't be permitted? I think what has been pretty alarming to many people is just how much of an extreme shift there's been in some of the bills and the laws that have been passed banning abortion. Not too long ago, exceptions for rape and incest and to save the life of the mother were pretty well accepted by even a good portion of people who would consider themselves or identify as pro-life. That is not the case anymore. You can see in states, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, a lot of different states are passing bills. In fact, in Kansas, a legislator introduced a bill this session that would ban abortion completely, had no exceptions for rape or incest, and had almost no exception to save the life of the mother. The only exception was eptopic pregnancy, which, as we all know, is incompatible with life for both the mother and the baby. So we have shifted pretty significantly to an extreme position on some of these bans that will put women, girls, their lives at risk. And that is, I think that should be alarming for Kansans and Americans. I think the other thing to consider is that most people are not on the far left or the far right on this issue. Most people are somewhere in the middle and have don't have necessarily a black and white view, but they do believe the vast majority, I think 80% of Americans and over 60% of Kansans believe that women ought to have access to abortion care when they need it. Ashley, I'm really curious how 
the campaign in Kansas is going to be framing because the people who are for the constitutional amendment are using the slogan, value them both, which mm-hmm. makes me cry. But anyway, <laughs> and you even used the word pro-life just a, a few minutes ago. What do you think of these frames and what? how are you going to frame it? I would say that there are political frames and then there are that most regular people, I think, mm-hmm live within. And I think pro-life and pro-choice is very much a political frame. And we divide people into two two buckets. This is how you are. You're either pro-life or pro-choice, which is, I think, a very, like, a false division. I think most people are somewhere in the middle. And even, I think there was a Gallup poll that was done that had asked people specifically to self-identify one of those two groups. And it was pretty evenly split. But then when you ask them whether or not they believed that people ought to have a right to access abortion care, 80% said yes. So clearly there is a there's a, just a difference in opinion about what those terms mean. It, here in Kansas, I think that it is a more conservative state, but I think that what's important is looking at what I think Darcy said earlier, which was privacy. Most Kansans, regardless of party affiliation, would agree that you ought to be able to make private medical decisions for yourself free from government overreach. And if the amendment passes, it will give politicians the power to to pass whatever laws they want regarding abortion, up to and including a complete ban. Despite what they, I think, tried to make us feel like was included in the amendment, there are no protections for rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother. And the wording's particularly confusing. You can argue whether that's intentional or not, but most Kansans believe that we ought to make those choices ourselves. And people who are faced with a serious health issue or a serious complication in their pregnancy ought to be able to make choices of how to move forward. And women who have other circumstances in their lives ought to be able to make those decisions that best represent what's good for themselves and their family. And they ought to be able to make that decision privately with their doctor and potentially with their support system. Max, you have a whole section in your book about the Institute, what is it called? The Institute for Propaganda. Propaganda and, uh, yeah. And so I think you're styling yourself as a kind of an expert on how we should talk about this issue. What did we learn about propaganda? Take, for example, framing. You mentioned framing issues. Yeah. Drew Weston, a social psychologist, and George Lakoff, a linguistic specialist, both conclude that you don't persuade people most efficiently by presenting as a professor this makes me uncomfortable but you don't persuade them by presenting reasoned arguments because they listen to it and go ahead and sometimes it even reinforces their belief you persuade them by presenting the information in an emotional way get them heated up get them angry or get them enthusiastic in other ways and this can be used in a an acceptable way i would say and that is to present your positions correctly and not in a distorted way but in a way that appeals to emotions and you have to be very careful to do that so you don't engage in overt propaganda you just engage in in persuasion and i think that goes to the point of what the folks who have been pushing this issue for a long time what they have done i have to admit well Um, they've spent 50 years using certain images and emotional arguments that are deceptive and misleading, whereas the other side, our side, tends to argue rationally and with facts. And that doesn't always, unfortunately, doesn't always work as well. I think what we need to start doing better and doing more of is telling the stories of real people, because these are not hypothetical situations. These are 
real people's lives, real women's lives who are impacted, real children's lives who have been abused, real working women who are facing very significant challenges, many of which are compounded by the choices that our, some of our politicians have made. And so we really have to make sure that we're telling those stories. And those are the, one, the people who are experiencing these situations are centered in the argument because they're the most compelling. Thank you all. And thank all of you for being here. It's been a really enlightening conversation. You're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and uh, we've got Liz Walsh on the line. G'day Liz, how are you? Oh, good, thank you. Yeah, Liz is from the Victorian Socialists and you're part of the people who have brought together people to rally at State Library Steps today, pro-abortion rights protest. Uh, Can you give our listeners some of an understanding of why it was so important to organise this rally? Right, well the... um the Supreme Court of the United States just um, handed down a ruling on Friday that stripped uh, millions of people of the right to abortion, the right to control their bodies, their you know, lives, essentially, um, which is a historic attack on the rights of women and, and pregnant people. Um, so, yeah, we think that this, this ruling, which uh, sends rights back you know, 50-odd years, uh, needs to be met with rage all around the globe and protest and we've seen big protests in the United States um, but we also think it's important to stand in solidarity with those fighting back and um, and to make it clear that they're not alone that we, we stand with them um, and also because you know we need to make sure that the bigots in Australia um, are clear that we'll um, we're ready to take a stand to fight them if they have tried anything on here in Australia 12 uh, p.m state library steps. We're all, all got to be there. Yeah, I hope to see many thousands. It looks like there are thousands of people prepared to come um, and also prepared to take a stand around our own rights to choose here. You know, we don't have free abortion in Australia. We don't have it being um, properly accessible. It's far too few services. So we also have issues to raise ourselves. Um, so that's yeah, another reason for us to see thousands out there today. Yeah, and of course... That particularly affects rural uh, people, doesn't it? Because uh, people uh, in the past, Tasmanians, women, always had to come to Melbourne in order to do this. Uh, It was a bit like the Irish having to go to England because it was uh, not allowed there. It was illegal. I mean, there's so much um, mealy-mouthness going on, isn't there? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, abortions... Um, just in terms of the cost to begin with, you know, can with you know Medicare um, funding can still cost around six hundred dollars uh, surgical abortions, um, and you know maybe two hundred or more um, for medical abortions, and that's because of particularly the cost of the ultrasounds that you're required to get, the dating scans, to know what you know how far along you are, and you know so what um, procedures appropriate. You know, the fact that there's all these private providers of imaging um, rather than these being publicly funded, publicly run services is pretty outrageous and could be real barriers to poor women being able to access um, abortion. Um, and then, yeah, the the fact that there's so few providers, very few people can get um, abortions through public hospitals. Um, basically, have to be extremely marginalised in order to access that or um, 
you know, in a situation of needing a late-term abortion. Um, but, yeah, there's far too few providers. Um, a lot of them are private or they're public clinics, but we know that there's been a massive underfunding of community health uh, by both sides of par- um, parliament. Uh, and so, yeah, so particularly regional women who have, you know, um, you know, bad access to public health already also need to travel long distances, maybe have an overnight stay as well in Melbourne to be able to access, you know, the abortion service, which adds to the cost and adds, again, to significant barriers. And, you know, so we do have a situation where Aboriginal women um, and, yeah, Aboriginal women have, have real barriers to be able to exercise their rights Um so we'll be demanding, you know, for free abortion, for these services to be properly bulk billed um, and for a real investment in our public health system. Yeah, so 12pm, State Library Steps, pro-abortion rally. Thanks very much for talking to us this morning. Right. Thanks, Annie. Workers, welcome back to the Alberta Worker Podcast. You are tuning in to episode four of season one, and I am pleased to introduce our guest today. Our guest is Dominic Shaw, who happened to apparently be the first wheelchair-bound person to ever repel in Calgary's annual Easter Seals drop zone. Welcome, Dominic, to our show. Thank you for having me. And just for clarification, um, my friend Ryan, who did it at the same time with me, he actually got down first. I just took oh. the spotlight. So, yeah. But I'll That's take awesome. it. <laughs> was he also in a wheelchair? Yes, he was. He was our sledge hockey goalie, actually. So. Okay, cool. So two of you went down at the same time in wheelchairs? We did, yes. That's awesome. Cool. Well, let's get right into it. So uh, tell us your life story. Like, where'd you grow up? What was your family life like? Where'd you go to school? And then, yeah, as you're talking about that, maybe um, incorporate your labor history, you know, your first job and what you're doing now and everything. In between. Um, uh, ask anybody that knows me and say, I just have like an unbelievable life. Um, some for the good, some for the bad. Um, as you can tell, I'm a person of color. I'm a black person. My um, Mother was Scottish. My father was uh, Jamaican. I was born in England, put up for adoption before I even hatched, I guess. Raised by nuns for the first two years of my life, adopted, brought to Canada, basically grew up in northern BC, northern Yukon. This is places like uh, Cassiar, Lower Post, Pele, Whitehorse. The longest place that we stayed was 13 years in a small um, indigenous community um, called Iskut, I-S-K-U-T. Literally population 300. My parents were teachers. We actually lived on the reservation. And um, one of the lucky things that I've, that I've had through my life is I haven't been, I guess, as aware of what racism is in that because sort of with isolation growing up there is, uh, I thought racism was just... Um, okay, they bring people on slave ships. It's not happening anymore. Don't worry about it type of thing. So it, it was what it was. It, it definitely helped shape me in that. Didn't have my first job until I moved to Whitehorse. I was 14. It was uh, McDonald's. Now, I've always had a bit of a disability. 
I had a spinal stroke when I was two, pretty much recovered by the time I was about, let's say 12, didn't have a wheelchair, did the force grump braces, uh, full body cast, archaic surgeries. <laughs> Times were different back then. It's like the Fred Flintstones of the, uh, of the world uh, entering medical field, I guess. So it was very um, unique for me having that job um, because I was the fry guy. And half of me was telling it, dude, you're the fry guy, that sucks. But the other half was, I never expected to be working a job. Never mind working with my brother and my friends and this and actually making money like it was a big deal. So what was it like uh, working at McDonald's as your first job? You know, you, oh, you, were, you already had your disability to an extent. So mm. what was that like? And, and to be honest, my first job was McDonald's. My first real job was McDonald's. And I also was the fry cook. Oh, sweet. <laughs> you, got, you got the uh, Z in the salt shaker. But the only um, disability I had was flat feet. So you probably had a little bit more challenging time than I did. You know how McDonald's is built where everything is really sort of close together? Two people yeah. can pass. I mean, that really worked for me because I could literally like have my hands on everything and sort of wall walk, right? Okay. So okay. I was bouncing around. Grill, no problem. I hated doing counter. I really did. Because yeah. you'd have to walk in the open, carry drinks, not for me. Out of McDonald's, I, you know what? I, do, I don't know if it's the same. I really doubt it anymore. You have your little handbook and it really teaches you how to be a good worker, as in how to work hard, how to achieve quality, how to recover from your mistakes, how to communicate with your coworkers and your management. I really, really like what McDonald's did for me. Yeah. Because I have an understanding from a very early age of what a business needs and how to help that business. And therefore that business can turn around and, and pat you on the back, right? Moving uh, to Toronto, one of, the, one of the jobs that I did continue was I worked at uh, McDonald's part-time, literally right on Young Street, just south of Bloor, the bad McDonald's. And I kind of liked that job because on Saturday nights, I would do, um, I forget what they call it, but basically I'd be the lobby guy. And I didn't have to change a garbage. I didn't have to pick up a mop. I was basically the McDonald's bouncer. It was great. I mean, 16 years old, I was a big kid, but downtown Toronto, yeah, okay, let's go. It was really exciting for me. One of the other things, I got to work at the Sky Dome, which uh, when it opened, they had a competition. Any of the local Toronto stores, if you wanted to work there, the best counter person and the best grill person. And you got a $2 an hour raise. That was amazing that I got it made a lot of money and I mean can you imagine two dollars like what almost 30 years ago that's a huge raise yeah, got absolutely. to see uh Madonna concerts Prince concerts so many baseball games like that probably I have to say probably kept me out of drugs and gangs <laughs> to wow. be honest I ain't gonna lie your job kept you out of drugs and gangs <laughs> it pretty much because I mean all my friends they worked at McDonald's and all, they, all we wanted to do is, you know what, either play baseball in Regent Park and hopefully not get shot or have our bike stolen or go to uh, baseball games. Sure. Like that's, that, that's what we lived and breathed. So, If you liked this podcast episode, please rate and review our podcast. And you can support the Alberta Worker by going to albertaworker.ca slash support. And we thank again, everybody, for tuning in. And thank you especially to Dominic for joining us today. And as always, solidarity. A minute for the free Skittles. <laughs>
Welcome to Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers Union. We're here to have conversations and start conversations about the past, present, and future of the labor movement, as well as talk about some of the work the union is doing with USW activists leading the way. Robert Sater Schreiber has always been a little bit of a rabble rouser. He sees where change is needed and he takes action. I wanted to know what it was about Bayard that inspired Robert to dedicate his entire life's work to uplifting his name and his story. Bayard was a freedom fighter whose Quaker roots paved the way for a philosophy for peace and nonviolence. He was the one who convinced Dr. King to employ civil disobedience, and he taught him how to do it right. Even while serving time in federal prison for refusing to sign up for the draft, Bayard quietly yet powerfully educated and organized his fellow inmates to better their conditions and exercise their rights. It's this exact, tenacious, yet quiet commitment to his values that leads Robert to walk in Bayard's footsteps. He had this universal view of of what we could accomplish together as a combination of, you know, these beautifully diverse communities, uh, of this intersectionality that nobody was thinking about, that nobody was was recognizing, that nobody was seeing. Bayard is a fascinating figure to dive into. He was incredibly well-respected by labor and civil rights leaders, black and white. But his life as a gay man created barriers, as did his very brief flirtation with the Communist Party. But people like Dr. King felt Bayard's contributions to the movement outweighed any risk of smear campaigns or gossip. Even late Representative John Lewis, then leader of the Southern Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, acknowledged in the 1960s that the movement would not only benefit from Bayard in a leadership role, they needed him there. Organizing the 1963 March on Washington in particular required a firm, faithful hand that John knew could be found in Bayard. And so, although navigating behind the scenes, Bayard set out to plan one of the most widely known events in both national and world history. We have to wonder, would any of us ever have had the privilege of hearing Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech if it weren't for a black gay Quaker from Westchester, Pennsylvania? But it was that message of what he wanted to accomplish, what he was looking at, that inclusivity, that intersectionality that nobody had seen before. And the fact that then he wasn't even recognized for any of that work, which was actually fine with him. Um, He was okay being in the background. He was okay not being seen or heard if he was able to amplify others. And that's an extraordinary thing in and of itself. For David, being an angelic troublemaker, especially in the world of labor, is all about staying true to your values. So the troublemaking part is the easy part for me uh, because there's so many different ways to to take on systemic change that needs to happen. But the angelic part is the part that I've really learned and and been inspired by. And that's that's really doing things that are really uh, from my core and deeply aligned with, with what my, who I need to be. And so I'm not gonna, you know, I've done, protests that I was 90% on board with and protests that I was 25% on board with and, and, and fights along those, but, but really angelic troublemaking is do what you are called to do, like what you have to do 
And then whatever that takes, do it. Don't give up because it gets hard. So it's both a call to always be doing the work, but then always be doing it for the reason that keeps you moving in that work. Even with our values intact, remaining steadfast on this path in the labor and social justice movements can be challenging. But Robert said, if anyone can do it, if anyone can help bring positive change for LGBTQ plus workers and all workers, it's unions and the members who give them heart. Unions bring empathy to their workers and to the struggle. And when we hear stories of people uh, in factories, online, wherever they may be, that are in unsafe conditions, that are not being treated fairly, that are being disrespected, that their lives are at, literally in peril. Um, it's this empathy that, that unions bring and these stories that are shared, which is the same in our queer community, in our black and brown communities, with women, with non-binary folks, with transgender folks, with all of us. The more empathy you can bring, the more stories that we can share, the greater that we all become as a community, as a whole. That'll do it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org and You can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith and Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us, hope you do, on Twitter and Instagram, Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. And before we go, please take just a second to help us build sonic solidarity by sharing this show. Just click on the share button. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. 